This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 129, The Year of Decline. Last episode, we discussed two differing accounts of the French foray into Wales in 1405. At the time, I, of course, questioned the veracity of the French and Welsh purported invasion of England to confront Henry in a battle with a few pieces of evidence that I neglected to discuss may swing this discussion in favor of that idea. From 1405 to 1407, the marcher areas in England, not the ones in Wales, in the areas around Hereford and south to Monmouth, saw their tax rolls reduced on account of their poverty due to the war. These areas may have been ravaged by an army looking for supplies for itself as it moved forward and then retreated back to Wales. This would give credence to the suggested idea by Monstrelet of this march east. In other words, an army moving forward, especially in enemy territory in the Middle Ages, and let's be honest, before and in sometimes since, will go along and raid the local farmers' fields, stealing what they need to in order to survive, in order to stock up, and to stretch supply lines. It something that made perfect sense at the time and was seen as a tactical and strategic thing to do. What it meant was, however, that it would then leave the surrounding populace with less food, less supplies, and in the end, less ability to make money off of those things, which obviously would hurt the local economy. Thus, when the Kingsmen came around to claim their portion of that particular profit, they're then told by the local populace, hey, we don't have it. In fact, by the way, we're kind of starving to death thanks to this enemy army. So the concept here is it shows something happened. And there are very specific examples that give credence to this. Supporting this as well was that in the area around Shropshire, also saw a sharp decrease in population during this period as an increase in destruction and in lack of food supplies and food sources led to a retreat in population over the next couple of years, which would make sense if you've had something like this happen. And specifically, it's noted that this started to occur shortly after August and September of 1405, which coincides with the purported time that this army was coming into view. The final piece of evidence was that Henry, from July to the end of August, was moving men and equipment into the border regions to counter this force, including moving supplies and men and material into the town of Wooster himself for around a week, as noted by the chronicler. His issuing of commands that were both widespread, such as all 
able-bodied men who have weapons should come and help defend the countryside. It was obviously a widespread and desperate appeal, and included in that was a message that effectively was you would suffer the pain of the king's wrath if you did not respond. So you can detect a note of panic in that call. So again, this goes back and shows that there was a deep concern about something in the area around Worcester in this period, exactly during the period when the French and Welsh were supposedly moving toward England. By August 23rd, the king was in Worcester and then left again on August 31st, eight days later, which again would work in some of the descriptions. There is also evidence to suggest that the confrontation may have happened in September, as the king spent a few weeks in Hereford during that month. Either way, the events of the summer and autumn of 1405 changed how the conflict looked. For Henry, the bringing in of French military forces stopped making this a simple rebellion and now put it on an international perspective. It made him very nervous and started to make him rethink some of the things he'd been doing. Meanwhile, in Wales, it gave them a perspective that they could finally, maybe once and for all, be able to negotiate with Henry from a position of, if not strength, at least at a peership level. In 1405, to at least the summer of 1406, something strange happened. While not peace, seemingly both sides stopped any progress. Henry, who had in the past moments been so willing to invade Wales to deal with the rebels en masse, seemed to halt all action. Glyndwr, who had led armies on raids, invasions, and general mayhem for months at a time, especially during this period of the late fall and early spring, seemed to pause in this period. According to historian Dr. Gideon Bro, this seemed to suggest that at least until the winter of 1405-06, there was some form of negotiated truce. Prisoner exchanges were being made, and in some cases the king was getting involved with these exchanges, going so far as to personally call for captured Welshmen who were not even considered significant enough to be named to be released back to the Welsh in these exchanges. At Harlot Castle in the summer during the Parliament, Glyndwr had suggested that one of the solutions he was looking for was a peaceful resolution with the English. For King Henry, this gave something else he needed, which was time. He used the ensuing months of the winter and spring of 1406 to begin weeding out those he could not trust. First, issuing carte blanche judicial decision-making, Earl of Urundel, who was tasked to go to the various border shires and flush out those who were rebels, who sold or traded goods to them, or were sympathetic to their cause. This would create a buffer zone to try and get his own areas under control in effect stamping out resistance and ensuring that there's no problem on that border area either through capture through movement through killing anything that needed to be done to basically sort the problem this points to a king not ready to launch a full-scale invasion thrust this was a time for someone who was looking to shore up his 
edges, his border areas, to ensure that there were no more of these examples of negotiations being made by various shires on their own with the rebels to try and buy them off, such as certain areas offering hundreds of pounds to Glindor to leave them alone. All of these things, these individual purchases of peace had to come to an end and Henry needed to get control. So in order to do that, he pursued what seemed to be a method of judicial heavy-handedness because we're talking Henry IV here. That's kind of what he does. And built around the idea of bridging loyalty into his kingdom. Of course, the other thing he's doing at the same time which is coming about is after having seized Percy's lands and all of his supporters, he has a massive amount of property in Northern England that he can freely give to supporters, to loyalists, to anybody who sort of is on the edge of the whole discussion, including members of parliament that may not agree to fund his war. He can ship them a little bit of land by a little bit of ability to ensure some agreement. And it gave him, in fact, more income, which then allows him to have the power to run the campaign how he wants. In other words, this time frame of this peace treaty, which was so critical to Glyndor, was absolutely paramount in helping Henry regain his footing, to put himself back on the front foot, and to be prepared for what was coming something he couldn't have done had the French and the Welsh kept the pressure up. But, as we'll see, that's part of the problem. Henry may have finally decided he didn't want to take on the combined might of the French and Welsh forces in open battle, either in England or in Wales. He obviously realized that biding his time was his best strategy. While we may never know, one only has to view the results that if he had made the call, that obviously it was the right one, and it gave him the opportunity, as I said, to find his feet. Henry's newfound ability to control his kingdom and centralize his control away from those more powerful lords who had opposed him since the death of Richard II, who themselves were now either in prison or dead, meant that he had time to focus efforts on building his next attempt to take back Wales. The king must have decided to use the truce, or at least the pause, to try and root out all those who stood against him once and for all. Among the English subjects on the borderlands, the arrival of the French armies to their villages and towns and farms created a lot of motivation to push for action. All of a sudden, this foreign enemy was here. So calls went out to stop the French. They may not have cared about the Welsh, but they darn well didn't want the French anywhere near them. And the Allies were now as much a liability in more ways than one for Owen. To top this change of fortune off came the news that the French had left Wales in November of 1405. Possibly in part, as some chronicles have suggested that the gentry left at this point, leaving the bulk of the army or the, the regular soldiers to kind of tough it out through the winter, eventually leaving in February with all of the rest of the forces now leaving Wales. Without the backing of the Orleanists, the Welsh were now in serious trouble. As 1406 began with the country on the precipice, Owen now had to adjust to once again he was alone. 
Only now, instead of an army of rebels who could quickly strike out anywhere, he was in a fixed location with a government and working with a bureaucracy and a, acting as a lawgiver. He couldn't just simply pick up sticks whenever the going got tough, move into the mountains, and then strike Henry as he chose, which had been happening in the past. Now he had a castle that he had to defend. He had people that were depending on him in local areas across Wales to help defend and keep them independent. That meant that for the first time, Henry was in a position to pursue a war where he could attack something fixed and located, and Owen wouldn't be able to flee as easily as he could in the past. That is a very dangerous situation when you're outnumbered, outmanned, and effectively outgunned. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfasts, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And, of course, combined with all of this, the people themselves were now starting to feel the effects of the war, and the cost was jarring. Many Welsh farmers, landholders, villagers, and assorted other trades were slowly being financially bled dry. Their buildings, in some cases, destroyed, crops were burnt or stolen, and getting raided and then raided again by armies from both sides. Thinking about Carmarthen as an example, it was attacked and destroyed possibly at least twice, the local villages similar circumstances because you guarantee that if the welsh attacked an english village the english would have attacked a welsh village and all of this cycle would have continued over and over again so the life for an average person was one of great misery and little benefit 
All the grievance you can muster could be tempered if you lose security, safety, and your home and family because of some greater ideal that the nobility has about your independence. And all of a sudden, all of those problems that you had before with the English are now maybe not as big of a deal. And in your perception, might suddenly become a lot of a point of maybe I don't want to do this anymore. And as the case was throughout its history, the country of Wales had a much smaller population than its bigger neighbor. You understand that the weight of the losses of sons to war and families to starvation would have drastic consequences for many. As hard as the peace had been, the war was certainly creating more and more problems and more and more issues. Just remember, it's only 50 years gone from the first dose of the Black Plague when a lot of people died. There isn't masses of people to replace them to this point. There hasn't been the opportunity yet. So you have that working against them already. Now you're in the midst of a war where you're losing people and add that to everything along with the fact that you know, if you do survive, gee, you might not have your farm to go back to because random army burned it to the ground or stole all the crops. So your ability to make wealth and to eat is gone. And in Wales, you didn't have loads of opportunities and options. So that all starts to wear on the country. And the it creates so many additional problems. Few could understand or be sure how the war would finally finish, but signs of the stress of the war on the Welsh was beginning and it was straining the economy's ability to survive. The economy of Wales would take nearly a hundred years to recover from this war, in part because they lost, but also because the Welsh increasingly did not have access to the levers to make it better. The same basic issues in Wales exist right to the Industrial Revolution, from going as far back as at least Roman times when we have our first written records. As was largely said, and I, I know as a Canadian I use Canada as an example on occasion, and here's another one of those. As has been said about our country, Canada, in times past they were largely hewers of wood and drawers of water. This quote, which is a biblical in origin, in modern times originated with the Canadian economist Harold Innes, who used it in his 1930 book, The Fur Trade in Canada, to describe our traditional economic dependence on resource production. In other words, as far as Wales was concerned, they were little more than a colonial outpost to a larger state that existed with a capital in either London or Colchester, depending on the era. This periphery status, with no central core to it, was the reason for so much of the grievance that plagued Welsh and English relations from the beginning of the coming of the Normans. In Glyndwr's day, this was magnified by the English encroachment and pacification techniques of Edward I. English towns, castles, and gentry were treated differently. Thus, the Welsh populace saw this and resented it, which is where the issues originated in the first place. As we move away from the war fatigue that was likely setting in, we are now to return to discussions about why France was helping the Welsh and to what extent the alliance had been fulfilling French policy. As we discussed a couple of episodes ago, 
the French were actively seeking to end the schism, which had created two different centers of papal dominance, one in Rome, which had the favor of the English, and one in Avignon, which had its own French support and a French pope. This is not simply a religious dispute. This is also about power and control. The power of the pope in medieval decision makers in Western Europe during this period cannot be overestimated. While yes, kings made decisions, kings controlled their countries, and kings on occasion, in to their own peril at times, ignored the pope's advice and uh, consent on, I would say, a relatively frequent basis. But at the same time, what you have is you do have this layer of belief system that says the Pope is the center of everything, and thus you need them to legitimize your crown. You need them to say, you know, this man has been put in this place by God. It gives you a sense of being anointed to your position. It gives you protection from those who claim that you shouldn't be there because you can say, well, God said it. And so the Roman Catholic Church at the time was very integral to this whole discussion and the philosophies and ideals that built the medieval world stem in part from it. So if you can control that, that's an amazing advantage that you have. The massive wealth of the church was also effectively up for grabs along with this prestige. And to have that invested in your region was also important. Think back to the cathedral buildings that were going on, how much work that would put into the local economy, how much money that would put into the local economy to, in order to make that. Well, yes, a church comes in and, and gets money from the populace and from the crown. It also contributes to an economy, which contributes to the taxes, which contributes to the crown. So it's a circular type of investment. So the more control you have, the more influence you have, the more likelihood it is that you're going to have this continual flow of finances. And of course, it's just convenient enough to have the Pope in your neighborhood. If you decide, you know what, I'm not very happy with you. You can just walk in, take his stuff, take his money and say, well, you shouldn't have made me mad. All of those things come out in this dispute. And with the power that the French had at the time, along with England, it's somewhat startling to realize how much would change within a hundred years, as by then, new countries like Spain, Portugal, and Holland would all blossom and rise to massive powers, in part because of navies and explorers, while England and France got lost in various wars, battles amongst themselves, civil wars, and all the things that tore them apart in that process. Imagine what would have happened if France and England, as stable powers in that era, had had the financial wherewithal and the might to do more than kind of become the Johnny-come-latelys of the New World. How different would the world look at this point? And more specifically, how different would a lot of other things look at that point? It's one of those things, it's, it's conjecture, obviously, but still, it's one of those things that you look back at and wonder how, in some ways, they let this slip through their figures. But when you realize what's about to happen to both countries as they get 
embroiled into more of the Hundred Years' War as France slips further and further into civil war, and then England follows suit by following into its own civil war, you can see why these other countries are able to kind of grow, develop, and advance at a point when the superpowers are basically crumbling. So, going back to the Welsh story, Owen knew in the winter of 1406 that he that if he was going to keep his embryonic nation intact, he would have to continue French support. The problem was, French support was mostly about getting revenge for their spurned princess, the wife of Richard II, and about gaining support for the French Pope, not really about helping an ally anymore. So, Owen needed them, and he needed to hit them where they lived. He had to appeal to the one thing the French wanted more than simply satisfying their honor. He would have to gain papal support, and in so doing, specifically support from the French claimant. This would then tie him to their cause, and I would assume he would feel obligated to them once more, and they then would feel more obligated to send more forces west to help him maintain his vulnerable borders from more invasions from Henry. It's not long after this that the breadbasket of Gwyneth would again become the focus of Henry, so it makes sense that having a large French force, specifically the French navy and the French army, would help Henry to play nice in the middle of a peace treaty negotiation or at least some sort of truce. Because, of course, if Anglesey falls, that does hurt northern Wales, and it does hurt the base of operations that Owen Glyndor has been depending on for most of this rebellion, ever since he was effectively kicked out of his own lands. North Wales has been the key to the entire story that's been going on the last five years. So if he doesn't have North Wales in his camp, and it's a lot harder to do when you lose food sources, then all of a sudden it becomes a lot more difficult to hold and a lot more difficult to finance things because eventually your troops are going to say, you know what, I'm kind of hungry, I'm kind of starving, my family's starving, and maybe this just isn't worth it anymore. And this is where Henry's master stroke comes into play at this point. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you'd like to reach me, you can always do so at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me online and social media on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. Join us on Facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always bring me up on any of those. I do respond pretty much as quickly as I see them. And if I know the answer, I do try and find, give it to you. Or if I don't know the answer, to at least give you and point you somewhere to go for it. Either which way, thank you, everyone. And special shout out to all my patrons who are helping to finance this podcast, especially the buying of books for this podcast. You guys are awesome. And uh, if you are interested in supporting the podcast, obviously there's no obligation. But if you're interested, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history podcast. Until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.
This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.